0: And hello there, Peter Mansbridge here. You are just moments away from the latest episode of The Bridge. COVID, it's making a comeback. Governments tell us, most governments, good luck. You're on your own. Are you? Mm-hmm. Is coming to you from Stratford, Ontario today. Hello again. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Um, As you know, if you've been listening to The Bridge over the last two years, Mondays has been basically COVID day. And we've talked to one of our epidemiologists to give us the latest sense of what's happening and how best to deal with it. Uh, We missed yesterday because we had a special program with Ambassador Bob Ray from the United Nations, Canada's ambassador. And uh, his thoughts on Ukraine, especially on this issue of how you deal with a uh, war criminal. How do you negotiate with one? If you didn't hear that program, you probably should listen to it because it's really good. It's received a lot of attention already. Um, And we will deal with Ukraine again on this program today because it's Brian Stewart's regular day. As he uh, drops by on Tuesdays to talk to us. About some of the things as a veteran correspondent, war correspondent, foreign correspondent that he is, that he's seeing, that he's watching, that he's monitoring, um, that perhaps a lot of others aren't talking about yet. He also has some thoughts today on the atrocity question, this terrible, horrific story that keeps unfolding If you think it's bad one day, it gets even worse the next day. And his thoughts as a veteran war correspondent, having seen atrocities before in different parts of the world, uh, what we should learn from the past about what we're witnessing today. But we're going to start on COVID because the numbers are increasing. Once again, they're bubbling up. You call it the fifth wave or the sixth wave. Um, Different parts of the country are calling it uh, by a different number. And nevertheless, it's there at a time when governments have basically punted in terms of restrictions, not hundred percent and not all provinces, but for the most part, they've punted and they're telling you, good luck. You're on your own deal with it. Well, Dr. Lisa Barrett has been dealing with it from a number of different angles as a one of Nova Scotia's top epidemiologists. She's been uh, talking about COVID for two years, offering her advice. And now she suddenly had to deal with it on a personal level because she's just had it. So it'll be interesting to talk to her, which is what we're going to do right now. So what was it like after two years of fighting it, suddenly you find yourself having it? What was it like?
1: could have bowled me over with a feather <laughs> for, for a person who uh, works very hard to stay out of COVID's way. It was shocking to me and my four on mass contacts the four days before <laughs> that I had COVID, um, all family, all testing all the time, uh, met for dinner, uh, all negatives. And the next morning, somehow I'm positive, uh, even before some symptoms. So, um, yeah, it's not the most fun I've had. I, I, of course, am fully vaccinated. Thank goodness that helped, but uh, lasts a while. And I can tell you the fatigue afterwards—it's a couple of weeks now—is um, still quite marked. So I hope people, uh, people, I hope people recognize that uh, if they have sick colleagues, be gentle with them. They may not just be home on a seven-day vacation.
0: So the mild word is not one you use
1: no I, I certainly it's i certainly got knocked down a lot more than i would have expected given that um, i saw so many people with very few symptoms fully vaccinated i'm a healthy human not the youngest anymore but a healthy human uh, so and more importantly when people come back to work i mean i'm slower and i'm still very fatigued so it's really difficult to imagine that everyone is going to be able to come back to work or work from home even during their illness the way i hear some businesses and some governmental agencies saying that people should do Um, very tough to expect that you're going to have a healthy workforce for the next eight to 12 weeks
0: what did you um aside from the things you've just mentioned what did you learn about this by having it as opposed to dealing with it the way you've had to deal with it for the last couple of years?
1: Um, I've, I've learned firsthand that um, you have a great deal of disappointment in yourself, I think, for those people out there who've been really careful about COVID, you kind of feel like you've failed at something. And I don't think that's just me. I've gotten a lot of notes from people saying, thank you for saying you had this. I was feeling tough on myself about it. So I think... Um, I learned that, yeah, you do feel like you failed and you shouldn't. Um, It's scary to think that you may have infected some of the vulnerable people around you. Um, I knew it before, but to experience it is a different thing. And the third thing really is that watching that inflammatory response Knock you down, and even after the symptoms are gone, you're still very fatigued and slower at your work. I, boy, I gotta say, um, good learning tools for me to to, to have had this. I uh, don't recommend people learn that way, <laughs> just trust me. <laughs> um, but it, it's not an insignificant psychologic change either when you get something that's a pandemic virus. Um, do you do things?
0: Differently, do you do you have a different attitude towards the way you do your daily routine as a result of having gone through it?
1: No, I was—I I literally had seen almost no one for two years um, and had barely gone back to seeing my older parents, uh, so. I don't think I change a whole lot about my days. I spend a lot of time right now in the hospital in full PPE, but I think I've strengthened my messaging around re- reminding people that if they have symptoms to kind of stay home and, and to also, if, if tests are negative, don't trust them. It's only the positives that count um, or else we're gonna, we're gonna really get some of our, our vulnerables infected. That I've changed, I've strengthened that messaging, but I've, I'm sticking, honestly, all of our capacity limits are gone masking has gone um, as a mandate and now it's a recommendation in our province at least and uh, i'm really sticking with that and moderation of contacts i it's a sea of virus out there and if we're not if i'm not careful i'll infect someone else so I, i really that's a big thing for me right now i'm very careful about that
0: and if we're to believe um, those who sort of watch the stats and watch the way this thing has moved across Western Europe, the UK, now into North America, it's, it's not going to be pretty here for the next uh, few weeks or a month or so. Uh, things have started to go down a little bit in, in Europe and, and the UK, but uh, they're just starting here. Um, and governments are telling us, as you just kind of indicated, that we're kind of on our own here now. Like it's up to us to decide what what's the responsible way for us as individuals to uh, to carry on. They, is it does that sound reasonable, given what we've been through?
1: Not yet. It doesn't. Eventually, one hundred percent, that's the way to go. I dislike if I've said it once, I've said it a thousand times, I dislike mandates. It's not the way I love to work my world and the people around me or live in a community. But right now, people are really tired. And people need some help making great choices, I think, especially when there's a huge community and health system risk. You know, we didn't, you know, rare events. People are like, oh, these are rare events, these hospitalizations. Oh, really? Um, You know, we knew that there were other things like smoking, like smoking bad for people in the air around you you don't want people to have to make the choice to go outside to smoke you make it happen because it's hard to make the right choice there there's stigma there's social culture there's all those things the same is true with masks right now asking people to make the right choice is a huge burden on many people it's stigmatizing um and it's very hard to convince the people who don't want to wear masks to wear them and I think right now we still need those very strong messages that a mandate would bring to something, let's be clear, is not a restriction. It's a tool of control of spread. It's a tool. It's not a restriction. It doesn't, it's cheap. It doesn't cause economic harm. It doesn't harm us as humans. Um, And there is some moderate benefit to it at a community level. So why not do that?
0: What else aside from masking? do you think you know obviously we should ensure that we've uh, had our vaccines and the booster we should uh, mask if you feel comfortable wearing a mask and i guess you should be careful about where it is you you go
1: it's 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 literally the vaccine plus plan you can't do this without your booster at a community level or a personal level so that's a personal thing and a community thing but then it is the masking in public places it's it's capacity limits. Uh, can't, can't lie. Um, you know, you need to think about where you go and how often you go. And if you have people around you, there's, I can promise you, I know Canada's demographics. It's about one in five to one in 10 people that are in that vulnerable group. They either have multiple medical problems, they're older, they're immunocompromised, they have cancer, any of those things. And if you think you don't encounter one of those people every week, then I think you may be somebody who just sees no one. (laughs) So because there are so many vulnerable people around, you need to plan it out, do some of the things, some of the time, if it's big capacity spaces and places, please do it with a mask on. It's for a few more weeks, you know, it's till the end of the respiratory season and other than that, stay home when you're sick if you can. I know some people can't, um, but also, you know, there's provinces where you don't isolate anymore if you're sick. You really, really should stay home if you're sick. And uh, if you have access to testing, it's really helpful to know if you're positive. The negatives may not be as helpful. The positives are definite Indicator for you as a human if you're being pressured to go to work or pressured to do other things that you don't have to and you shouldn't. So if you've got access to testing, do that. So testing, moderate contacts, vaccines, and masks indoors till the end of the respiratory season. Not hard. Not hard.
0: Not hard is right. Um, it's good to talk to you. You sound pretty good to me. You don't sound slow. <laughs> <laughs> you sound like you got that Lisa Barrett speed still. Um, so I'm glad you you kind of fought your way through this and you're seeing the final edges of it. Um, take care of yourself. We'll talk again soon. Take care, Dr. Lisa Barrett, uh, Dalhousie University, one of um, the leading epidemiologists in uh, in Nova Scotia, and in uh, Atlantic Canada, in the country, and. She's always been so uh, good with her time for us, including right now as she uh, recovers uh, and has recovered from COVID. Although, as she says, she's she's feeling a little run down earlier in the day than she used to. So that's all part of uh, getting over this. Uh, good luck wherever you are and whatever you're doing and whatever you're choosing to do, uh, because it's still out there. And I don't need to, I don't need to tell you the numbers. Just look at them. You'll see that they're they're going up in terms of cases, hospitalizations, ICU beds. You know, it's not as bad as it was in January. That's for sure. But it is going up, and be aware of that, and make your uh, decisions and your choices about how you're going to uh, lead your daily life accordingly. All right. That's our, uh, that's our peek at the uh, COVID story uh, for this week. Um, Tuesdays has been, for the last month or five weeks now, uh, a moment for, for my old friend, great colleague, one of the country's finest uh, foreign correspondents, war correspondents. He's done it all. Uh, and that's Brian Stewart. And Brian has been monitoring the conflict in Ukraine, the war in Ukraine. Um, over this period looking for the kind of things that perhaps many of us aren't talking about uh, and trying to understand what they suggest about the big picture. Uh, And obviously in the last 48, 72 hours, the story for so many of us has been these horrific pictures um, that we're witnessing, you know, from Ukraine. And, uh, you know, they're... they're (laughs) Uh, they're really ugly, um, and they are clearly atrocities. So, what is the lesson when we're looking at these pictures, as much as we can look at them, but certainly are aware of what's what's being discovered there? What should we what should we be thinking about in terms of how this happened? Well, Brian, unfortunately, has seen atrocities before, and that's one of the things we're going to talk to him about this week. Uh, But first of all, uh, we're going to take a quick break. Right after this, we'll be back with Brian Stewart. And welcome back. Peter Mansbridge in Stratford, Ontario. You're listening to The Bridge on Channel 167, Canada Talks. Sirius XM Canada, or on your favorite podcast platform. And as we always say, wherever you're listening from, we welcome you to the bridge. Thanks for joining us. All right. As uh, as promised a few moments ago, Brian Stewart joins us with his wig- uh, regular weekly commentary on the situation in Ukraine, bringing more uh, depth and context and perspective to us on some of the things we're witnessing, some of the things we've heard and um, how perhaps we should be thinking about them. So let's get right at it. Here's Brian Stewart. Well Brian, the the news that's clearly you know horrified the world this week is the uh, the, the sense of massacres that have taken place in Ukraine, uh, seemingly by Russian soldiers, almost certainly by Russian soldiers, on Ukrainian civilians. now, as awful as it sounds, this isn't the first massacre, and it's not the first massacre in recent time. It's not the first massacres that you've covered, whether they were in Central America, like El Salvador, uh, whether in um, in Europe, at Srebrenica, in the uh, uh, Bosnian War, and elsewhere in many different parts of the world. You've covered them either on the site or f- from a distance. Um, what should we know about what happens in terms of massacres as they relate to you know, the leadership uh, of the country that seems to be responsible.
2: Well, it's, it's sometimes hard to tell you know, who's really behind the massacres, whether they're centrally directed, as they obviously were during the Nazi uh, era, and the group and massacres across much of the same territory as Ukraine now, uh, or whether it's just a breakdown of order in a really bad, bad uh, disciplined army. I look at these pictures and you know the pictures will never give you that sense of this awful smell and the the feeling of cruelty unbelievable cruelty that one has to be ready to uh, to instill in a society uh, to create a massacre. It's just incredibly cruel. But what it reminds me of, it it has a stench of the auxiliary, the military, the part-time soldier. Some accounts coming out of the area of the massacres are that the original Russian soldiers that went in were very cold and friendly, but correct. Uh, They stole some things, but they weren't into beating people up and massacres. It was later when they noticed some volunteers Of the voluntary groups coming in from Russian speaking uh, uh, the eastern border zone, you know, the uh, Dunbass and that's a very, all of those areas. Yeah, the Russians have been pulling in militias and mercenaries and the rest of it. It had the sort of stench of that kind of group that comes in following an army, gets into thievery and Criminality. It sees war as a kind of opportunity to uh, make profits and have a, a sadistic fun, and they get into the kind of massacre that felt to me like uh, the the, uh, the local citizens were correct in saying it seemed to be a different kind of soldier, uh, brutal, angry, filled with hate, coming from the Donbas region of eastern Ukraine, uh, working with the, the Russians, and I think that's that's the real stench here. I think it understands. Scores how the Russian invasion is an amazing torrent of bad discipline, poor morale, and breakdowns in law and order. It's just a horrible scene from start to finish. And I'm not surprised that there are massacres occurring. And I'm afraid there will be more so long as uh, Russia is bringing in mercenaries from Syria from other countries uh, uh, that have seen lots of horror in the past and are ready to do it again and have a taste for it. It's so hard
0: at at times like this to determine who to believe and what to believe, especially when it comes to tracking something like this. I mean, obviously, it wasn't the Ukrainians doing this to themselves, um, but it's very unclear, as you say, Uh, although you're pointing us in a certain direction, but it's still hard to determine facts and truth in a situation like this.
2: It is indeed, and that's why it's so valuable are the the, the longstanding organizations like Human Rights Watch. Uh you know, I, I declare an interest because I've been backing Human Rights Watch as long as it's been around. But it's the kind of organization that knows how to investigate massacres, knows how to go in and ask the right question, look for the kind of crime scene evidence. And and these are the ones that I, I think the UN and that will be looking for, particularly for evidence of war crimes and, and and how to pursue it. Uh, they'll play a vital role and there'll be other organizations as well uh, using photography and uh you know, witness accounts, of course, but all the sort of crime scene evidence that they're used to doing at the site of uh, massacres. It's an area where you want your specialists to go in who know what is a real massacre and what might be just a collection of um, citizens who were killed during shelling and the rest of it. This with people with uh, arms and legs tied has all the evidence of all the signs of a massacre. But it is good to get the established uh, human rights groups to go in there with their experience to really look for all the facts um, give us based
0: on your uh, experience and expertise give us a sense of where you think we are in terms of the way this war is unfolding I mean I, I think it's generally um, conceded that the Ukrainians have done much better than anybody thought they would and are probably have the advantage in the conflict at this moment uh, but what does that mean in terms of where it's going
2: well, I think most, almost all experts I've been listening to recently say that Ukrainians are essentially winning at this stage, but so far, that's the thing to underline, because now that the Russians are pulling back from the north slowly, but pulling back uh, and moving and regrouping on the east front of Ukraine, uh, we are facing a, a period of enormous danger for Ukraine. If you want to, without if you don't have a map in front of you, you think of that. Front now forming a giant sea with the sea turned around, where the main fighting now will take place in the Donbass region in the middle of the sea, uh, down uh, near the uh, uh, Crimea coast, Crimea peninsula, and up somewhat to the north. It's like a sea with a downward twist at the top and an upward twist at the bottom now ukraine has to make the terribly difficult decision that to stop the spread of uh, russians in the east they have to go in also if hopefully to push them back and out of those areas they've also taken but to move into that and they've already got 10 brigades uh in the east east of the uh, reaper river uh, Dnieper River uh, that's roughly 60 70000 troops now plus uh <laughs> Auxiliaries that are working with them So they've got a lot of troops already In that area, and as they push Towards the center, try and push back In Donbass, the Russians will almost Certainly try to envelop Them, moving down from the north And up from the south, in other words Encircling them, and bringing off A giant destruction Battle, a bit like Kursk was uh, In the Second World War, Stalingrad To a certain extent, and this Is so dangerous that even uh, French uh, chief of staff, the staff, Jerry Burkhard, warned last week that Ukraine, I'm going to quote him, faced with the difficulty of holding a stretched position without any operational reserve, could experience a sudden collapse. And I want that to sink in because this is a really dangerous area if the Russians were able to pull off such an encirclement. uh, The the Ukrainians would lose a massive amount of their national army and and have to really withdraw uh, back to the West uh, at some speed uh, as much as they could. However, you have to then ask yourself, well, why does the Ukrainian general staff seem confident or seem willing to move into the East like this? One is that they have no choice. They can't just sit there and let the Russians expand in the East. They have to go into contest this and push them back and push them out, if possible. And the second one, and I think this is very strong, too, is they don't think the Russians have it in them anymore to pull off such a complex battle of, of all arms uh, as to encircle a force like that. So they don't think the Russians can do the encirclement. So they will move more and more of their forces uh, into the East and we will get a major contest now, a major, the most perhaps decisive part of the whole war is going to take place in the next few weeks, I shouldn't say few the next weeks and perhaps months when this turns perhaps more into a war of attrition where both sides are trying to get the most advantage they possibly can so that if a peace agreement comes down they have leverage to hold on to what they've got and for the Ukrainians they have to fight this out and for the Russians Putin cannot risk a defeat so far he's going to have to go all out there's going to be a danger here that if the Russians appear to be doing particularly bad. We'll start hearing more and more threats of nuclear and chemical warfare coming out of Moscow uh, to up the uh, the ante and the stakes and the nerves. And if it, uh, the Ukrainians do well, we probably will move into a long war of attrition, which is very hard to stop when it goes on so long, because once both sides have lost... So many soldiers in the battle, it becomes harder and harder to concede uh, elements to give away in a peace agreement. All right, um, the the big mistake that the Ukrainians
0: would make is the same mistake the Russians made when they came in, which is underestimating the enemy. So the Ukrainians got to be careful about that, uh, you know, assuming that the Russians are are a spent force um, as they move in. But just before we move on, I just want to make sure that everybody gets the picture you were setting up with the giant sea, and you're talking about the letter C. Uh, Turning it around. Yes. Uh, well, no, you, you've got That's this giant, a giant sea where, they, where the Ukrainians would move into that from the open side, but the danger rests in the Russians then coming in from the north and closing off that open side, trapping the Ukrainians in the middle, right? From the
2: north and south and trapping exactly. them within that. Right, from exactly. the north. That from would that. be an extreme danger. And remember, the Russians will be then pouring in much more in the way of long-range artillery, cruise missiles, uh, really heavy, heavy airstrikes, I would predict. So for the Ukrainians to congregate their forces in any way is going to be very, very risky because of the attacks that will be coming in uh, at a much more sustained and coherent level than we've seen in the past from the Russians. Okay, you mentioned Kursk a few minutes ago, and
0: Kursk was this uh, enormous tank battle. It was kind of the last roll of the dice by the Germans during the Second World War to, uh, in their attack on Russia, things had been going poorly. They decided, they decided to try and to, to take take over this city of Kursk with a number of Russian divisions. Uh, Soviet divisions at that time uh, in it now it didn't work but it did result in one of the you know one of the last great tank battles and the reason I bring it up is because you made the point to me um, over the weekend on the phone that the tanks have really suffered a reputation hit in terms of uh, uh, of this war I mean tanks used to be the thing we just spent millions of dollars on new tanks as a result of uh, Afghanistan But the tanks have had a rough ride in this war
2: they certainly have and they're they're one of the many reputations that have been shredded in this war uh, starting with uh, Putin's strategic genius Uh, but you know the Russians have lost an astounding number of tanks something like 400 now to put that in perspective that's as much as Germany and Britain have combined in tanks and they've been torn apart hundreds of tanks have been torn apart in very many cases by Somebody firing a shoulder-fired missile that costs $75,000 taking out a tank that might cost $4 million. But that's not the real thing that's undermining the tanks, how easily they're being destroyed. is uh, If you look at the Russian figures, it's an amazing number, abandoned and captured. And that's because the crews are saying, these things are death traps. Tanks are being ripped apart like sardine cans and with these uh, cheap missiles coming in from on top and from a uh, straight horizon uh, from uh, well-concealed cases. And when the, when the warhead goes into a tank, the Russian tanks have their ammunition inside the hull. And like the American Abrams, where the ammunition is kept outside in a separate compartment, they just you know vaporize the, the crew of three. So a, a lot of the tank crews are clearly abandoned their tanks and running for it I should say is too that Ukraine has also lost 74 tanks but has more than it started with because it keeps capturing Russian ones so commanders are finding they can't really move the tanks around in the open without taking unsustainable losses you can't take 10 30 percent of your force uh, in losses and have it hold together it'll crack as the Iranians did and uh, sort the Iraqis did in the in the Kuwait uh, desert when the Americans attacked their tanks were all they're blown apart were quickly abandoned so it looks like you know while World War I saw the end of horse cavalry and World War II saw the end of the battleship after too many aircraft uh, sang too many battleships and it looked like the U- Ukraine war is certainly going to cause a lot of questions it may not cause the end of the tank era because tank uh, theorists now will be working on defenses against these kind of missiles what kind of electronic shield can they have but they're they're not very effective at the moment. In one part, as you go forward, they have to be surrounded by a ring of infantry soldiers moving out ahead of them to cut off these kind of attacks. And the Russians don't have enough infantry. Um, most armies to this day don't have enough infantry to guard long convoys like this. So they've really been of questionable use in this war. And I think a lot of people are now entering the debate. Has the tank seen its day? Is it going the way of the battleship and the horse cavalry? And this is going to be a very lively debate in military circles in years to come. And it's, uh, uh, a lot of soldiers are going to take a lot of proving before they're going to trust a tank or want to serve in the tank service in future. You know, it's it's quite remarkable, really, as it
0: turns out, because... Um, just by a fluke, over the weekend, I watched one of those documentaries on one of the uh, kind of history channels on the Kursk, the Battle of Kursk. And you saw these incredible images uh, uh, of hundreds of tanks rolling across um, uh, the horizon directly at each other. And it was a you know fight for everything in terms of you know, tank against tank. And now the picture you paint is <laughs> like this hugely modern tank. Up against one guy walking down the street with a,
2: a missile on his shoulder. It's Absolutely. quite a difference. It could be, you know, a teenage boy or girl walking along, taking their, their hiding place, waiting for a row of tanks to come up. Then you fire and take out the lead tank, which blocks all the others because they're coming down a the street. They can't go into the muddy fields without getting too stuck. And, you know, they not only can take out a tank, but make half the other tank crews jump out of their tanks and run away, which they've been doing, but also stall the whole convoy. So they get attacked with snipers and, and different missiles coming in and drones and the rest of it. So tanks have become a, a curse to many of these convoys going forward because they, they get blown up and they block the whole way and cause chaos in the the, the convoy.
0: Great conversation. Thank you once again, Brian, for this for giving us uh, things to think about that, uh, that we haven't been thinking about uh, as we follow the story unfold. Thank you. OK, Peter, my pleasure. Ryan Stewart, and um, you know he, he he has really been invaluable for for us in our little hobby podcast, as I like to call it, um, trying to understand what's happening on the ground in in Ukraine, um, the geopolitics of it. Uh, we follow as best we can with with the advice, like yesterday from uh, Canada's ambassador to the United Nations, Bob Ray. And once again, if you haven't heard that one. You really should listen to it because it's a really good discussion about the diplomatic angle to this story and how to try and unwind it at this point. It seems impossible given all the things that are happening on the ground and in the war. Um, but listen to this conversation. I'd, l- I'd love to know what you what you think of it. Um, so, and uh, many of you have already written, but. Um, uh, keep in mind, Thursdays is uh, is your turn. It's um, uh, your your chance to enter into this discussion, so uh, don't be shy. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. The Mansbridge Podcast at gmail.com. Um, but also, the kind of things that Brian talks about, which is, a, in, in a way, a kind of behind-the-scenes look at uh, what may be going on here. And Brian bases his... Assessments on on a number of things. He he reads an awful lot, as I've said before, and he he touches uh, not not the obvious um, authors and commentaries that are out there about Ukraine, but he goes back into his you know his his, his deep research in terms of uh, people he admires who write on military affairs in different parts of the world. Um, you know, it's mainly uh, uh, Washington, London, Paris. Um, and, and he uh, gets a sense from them as to what they're thinking, and it helps add to what he's thinking. And then he shares it all with us. Um, I should give you a snapshot of what to look uh, at in the, uh, in the days ahead here on the bridge. Tomorrow is, you know, Wednesday, Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Bruce will be by. And um, quite frankly, I haven't had a chat with Bruce yet, so I don't know what we're going to talk about tomorrow, but there's always something to talk about Um, as your mail, as your mail suggests, because we get lots of it every week after Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Um, Thursday is your turn, as I mentioned. So, once again, don't, don't be shy. Tell me what you're thinking. I don't read, I read all the letters as they come in. I only read some of them on the air. And I tried to get a, an assortment of different thoughts and opinions, um, and I love hearing from you and from the different parts of the country. So always make a point of mentioning not only your name, but where you're writing from. Uh, and uh, and then fire away with your thoughts. Uh, Friday is a bit of a trick this week. Thursday, as you probably are aware, is budget day. Uh, the finance minister, deputy prime minister, Christian Freeland, will give the budget speech in the House of Commons late Friday afternoon. Well, as it turns out, late Friday afternoon, I'll be getting on an overseas flight heading over to uh, Scotland for a few weeks. And while I'll still be doing the podcast uh, for a good part of the time in Scotland, I am going to take next week kind of an Easter week break off, but there will be um, encore editions of The Bridge, which will run all next week. But... How do we cover the budget for Good Talk on Friday? Well, here's what we've, uh, Chantel and Bruce and I have decided. Um, Good Talk is usually dropped, as they say in this business, at 12 noon Eastern time on Friday. We won't make that because I'll still be making my way up into the highlands. But there's always a repeat episode on SiriusXM at 5 p.m. And, of course, the podcast edition of Good Talk. So we're going to use 5 p.m. Eastern as the guideline for this Friday's Good Talk. At noon on SiriusXM, my friend Andrew Crystal will do uh, a program. And he's pretty excited these days because the Leafs are really doing well. I'm trying to withhold my excitement because it's still early. Things can happen. Anyway, Andrew will do the noon hour show. 5 p.m. will be good talk with Chantel and Bruce. By then, I will have got to uh, the location in Scotland where I can hook up the podcast equipment. And we'll do our show. And, of course, it will then be downloaded uh, right away as a podcast and available uh, throughout the weekend. So the only thing to remember about Friday is it won't be available at noon Eastern time, either on Sirius or as a podcast, but it will be by 5 p.m. Eastern. Got it? (laughs) Okay, that's great. Um, But back at the point at hand, the point at hand is promoting tomorrow. Smoke, Mirrors, and the Truth. Bruce will be by We'll talk about whatever it is we talk about. Hope you'll join us then. I'm Peter Mansbridge. Thanks so much for listening today. Another, in my view, very good program. <laughs> talk to you again in 24 hours.